Now this um, word mindfulness, we all hear so much about it. I get, every day, I get um, a, an email from Mr. Google who sends me a list of all the mentions of mindfulness and meditation that have been in the media in the last 24 hours. Google alerts, I mean, anyone can, can set them up. And uh, two which, uh, most of it's rubbish, of course, but two uh, which struck me today, um, caught my attention, which I think say something about the sort of, well, something about the kind of contemporary mindfulness movement. Um, one was uh, an article about how we can use mindfulness to manifest our desires. So it was all about kind of law of attraction stuff, if that means anything to any of you, um, positive affirmations, programming your crystals. There was a list of things that you had to do uh, in order to manifest your desires, which I think is interesting, interesting use of um, a tradition that goes back to the Buddha, who, of course, might have had a different view of that sort of thing. Um, and then the other one was a, a mindfulness notebook for those of us who need to reorganize our lives and not be so sort of stressed and frazzled. And essentially, it was just a notebook. Uh, at the top of each page, there was a sort of inspirational quotation, and at the bottom of each page, a section uh, where you could write um, you know, a couple of things that you were grateful for that day, and then a blank page in the middle which you just write your kind of notes. It was a notebook for um, $30. So I thought that was quite interesting <laughs> as well. And I think both of those are quite good examples of the slightly sort of trivial end of the mindfulness spectrum and the commercialized end of the mindfulness spectrum. And it is interesting the way in the last, I don't know, five, six, maybe seven years, that mindfulness has become this really kind of hyped thing, really is being hyped to death in some ways and thoroughly commodified. There's two principal ways in which I want to unpack um, or there's two principal ways in which the, the term is, is used. The first is as a, as a state, just the state of being more mindful, more aware, more present, more in the moment. And then the second refers to the various practices that might uh, help us cultivate that state of mindfulness. Some people talk about state mindfulness and faith mindfulness, but usually the two are kind of combined because you have to do the exercise in order to cultivate the state. And I want to unpack that a little bit more by talking about three ways in which the word mindfulness is used. There is that state, the ordinary English word. There is the contemporary secular mindfulness phenomenon about which we hear much and we can buy notebooks and that sort of thing. Um, and then there is the specific Buddhist practice of mindfulness meditation, from which, of course, the contemporary secular mindfulness movement is derived. So long before that explosion in the interest in mindfulness and the hype of mindfulness, it was an ordinary English word. It is an ordinary English word, not was. It is an ordinary English word. It's been used in use in the English language since, I think, the 15th century. Um, and it's a word that simply uh, means to be more recollected. Literally, it means of good memory, apparently. So it is a word to do with bringing to mind. And we use the word uh, mindful in ordinary, in ordinary everyday speech when we talk about uh, being more careful, mind the gap, or when we talk about um, being, uh, paying attention to someone's feelings, being aware of how someone is feeling. We talk about being mindful of someone's feelings. We talk about 
um, it, in the sense of not only uh, that kind of you know, awareness and being present and remembering, which actually makes it a, a rather good translation of the, um, the Buddhist term, as I will come to explain uh, in a little while, because it has that meaning of, of remembering, bringing to mind. And of course, it's also used to describe uh, the various techniques, as I said a minute ago, to cultivate that um, sense of being more aware, that being more present and being more engaged with the kind of reality as it is, instead of as we think it should or shouldn't be. I think it's quite useful to explore the meaning of words and terms and concepts by also considering the opposite of a term. So the opposite of mindful or being mindful would, of course, be, uh, include being mindless. Mindlessness, when we mindlessly sort of do things without really thinking about it, or when we're just kind of flicking through uh, a magazine in the, in the doctor's uh, waiting room. You know, we're not really paying any attention to what we're doing. It's kind of you know, mindlessly flicking through it. Um, of course, there's a lot of mindless activity these days in the use of um, social media and the internet and whatever we type, you know, and, and you know, having television on in the background, all that sort of thing. These might be behaviors, quite common behaviors, that we might describe as having an element of, of mindlessness about them. We could also think about the opposite of mindfulness in terms of being absent-minded, and that's something we all do some of the time. Um, I do it quite a lot of the time, so for example, um, I might be cooking something in the kitchen, and I think, oh, well, this needs to just simmer for five minutes, so I'll just finish off that email. And then 20 minutes later, you know, the smell of burning uh, brings to mind the fact that I was not being particularly mindful of the cooking. All sorts of things. You know, you, you get up from a desk to, to go and catch the scissors, and you go into the other room, by the time you get there, you've forgotten what it was that you were going for. Or you're driving along familiar routes, um, that you might drive every day or a journey you might take every day. But on that particular day, you're you know, meant to go somewhere else, but you forget or you're just daydreaming and you continue on your, your normal journey without really thinking about the fact that actually on that particular occasion you were meant to take the, the turning and go somewhere else or whatever it might be. We do that all the time, being absent-minded. And then there is um, the opposite of mindfulness in the sense of oblivion. And I think that's uh, another one that we sometimes crave oblivion. We might crave distraction if there are challenges or, or things that we find difficult about life. We might crave oblivion through intoxication and all that sort of thing. And this is, again, I would suggest the opposite of being mindful when we are seeking oblivion. Or if we're just simply unconscious because we're asleep, there's a form of oblivion there. This is not mindful because to be mindful is to be more conscious, be more present, be more aware. So there is that, that general sense of the word, mindfulness, of being aware, being present, being um, in the moment, being recollected to the, you know, whatever it is, present at the moment. And of course there are the practices that we might use to cultivate that state. And some of these practices will include meditation, but there will be others as well. But meditation will probably be one of the core practices and so people quite often wonder, and I'll just kind sort of briefly digress, what is the difference between meditation and mindfulness? And there are many ways of answering that. Basically, 
as I've suggested, mindfulness is a state which we might uh, engage in certain practices in order to cultivate. And among those practices, meditation will be foremost. One might meditate in order to cultivate mindfulness, but there may be other types of meditation or other reasons for meditation that would not necessarily lead to or be specifically addressing the cultivation of mindfulness. So there is overlap, like two sort of circles that overlap in some points, but there are also areas where they kind of um, refer to slightly different things. So what about the contemporary secular mindfulness movement? It's a particular sort of brand, if you like. It's a particular application of originally Buddhist meditation, um, developed, as you all know, as well as I, by primarily by uh, John Kabat-Zinn in the 70s, um, who was at that time a practicing Buddhist, but who um, perhaps in order to maintain funding from the Massachusetts Medical Institute, uh, decided to, to apply his ideas without calling it Buddhism. I mean, maybe I'm being a little unfair, but essentially he developed from Buddhist meditation techniques an application, a therapeutic application that could be used and is successfully used in a number of therapeutic contexts. But it tends these days outside of that rather specific kind of medical context. And there's things one could kind of discuss about the medicalization of mindfulness that would be an interesting topic and whether that's, well, anyway. Um, but these days it tends to be really focused on, on two things. And you know, as I scan my Google alerts every morning and try and filter out the rubbish, um, there are two things that, that kind of come up again and again. And it's mindfulness as an antidote to stress. Stress kind of relief rather than like dealing with the fundamental causes of stress, like you know, toxic work environment or whatever. Um, and mindfulness as a performance enhancing, I was going to say substance, or is it not a substance, but performance enhancing kind of practice. So we get a lot about mindfulness as the antidote to stress, as a kind of band-aid approach to dealing with stress and then a lot about mindfulness as a way of increasing efficiency, whether in the workplace or in you know, other aspects of our lives. And this, I think, is, is quite interesting. and says quite a lot about Western culture and the way in which this particular kind of tradition, and it obviously does come from that tradition, has adapted to the circumstances of Western culture and the form that it has taken is no accident when you think of the sort of, you know, consumer culture that we live in. It's usually defined, the classic definition of mindfulness is defined in terms of cultivating a non-judgmental awareness in the present moment, paying deliberate attention to immediate experience as it is in itself, with a kind of open openness and a curiosity and an acceptance of those experiences uh, for what they are. It derives from Buddhist meditation practices, but very explicitly with all the Buddhist bits taken out. And that was a, a kind of deliberate choice, as I suggested, when, when it was kind of developed as a, as a therapeutic intervention, to take out the Buddhist bits and all the... And, and to the extent that 
that quite a lot of mindfulness teachers will even say this is nothing to do with Buddhism and it's got no connection with Buddhism, which is slightly disingenuous. But certainly the the sort of contemporary application of mindfulness in terms of uh, eight-week courses and so on and so forth, you won't get any mention of, of kind of Buddhist doctrine and karma and rebirth and all that sort of thing on those kind of um, those kind of courses. But it is mainly about a kind of well-being on one hand and productivity on the other. And I think it's quite quite important to kind of bear that in mind and, and see the kind of direction of, of travel there. Some aspects of the contemporary mindfulness movement have predictably, and I've sort of hinted at this already, drawn a certain amount of criticism from, uh, notably from Buddhists themselves, who see their tradition being hijacked for what might be considered questionable ends, um, and others who might be wary of the effects of this kind of commodification of mindfulness and everything that's kind of goes with it. Applications of mindfulness which might seem, as I suggested when I started here, slightly trivialized or slightly uh, kind of consumerized and completely divorced from any kind of ethical context, any context that would give it a, a purpose related to a kind of you know, a, a bigger picture, as it were. And in Buddhism, you can... I mean, mindfulness isn't a neutral thing. It can't exist separately from that ethical context and from the context of the Buddhist worldview. And as a Buddhist teacher has very pointedly said, you know, a good sniper needs to have a high degree of mindfulness. But it wouldn't necessarily be considered a particularly mindful activity to be very good at uh, shooting people without them even knowing it. So, there's good mindfulness and there's bad mindfulness within Buddhism. You know, there's context, there's right mindfulness. And there is, you know, it's not, it's not just a neutral, secular practice for the Buddhist. So, Buddhists have, and there are some very interesting books uh, written by Buddhists, kind of reflecting on the contemporary mindfulness phenomenon and, and where they see it as a good thing. And I think, by and large, people do think it's a good thing, that, you know, better that people should be you know, more mindful than less, but also just with this kind of cautionary note that um, it's not as simply, it's not as simple as to say it's just a technique, it's just something that you can apply to everyday circumstances, or if it is, you're missing that wider context, that bigger picture that gives it a bit more kind of meaning, a bit more depth. Others might be uh, critical of the the sort of mindfulness as as productivity, or mindfulness as um, easing the stresses of the workplace, or mindfulness for better business decisions, mindfulness for the uh, corporate bottom line, mindfulness to make sure your workforce is nice and compliant and will put up with conditions that are causing the stress. So it's, it's in a way, it's, it's putting the responsibility on the individual rather than actually addressing the kind of toxic conditions that are making us so stressed. And this is, I think, also uh, you know, a useful point to consider. Again, it's not just a neutral technique. There's no such thing as neutral anything, really. Um, and there is little in that kind of contemporary mindfulness narrative about deep personal transformation. There's a lot about the benefits and the effects and 
the ways in which you can apply mindfulness to all sorts of situations in your life, mindful parenting, mindful sex, probably actually the other way around, um, mindful, you know, mindful in the workplace, mindful sport, mindful everything, mindful coloring books, all sorts. But um, without that wider context, without that sense of what might give it a deeper purpose and actually be about deeper transformation, which is, of course, where it came from. I think, to be fair, I've kind of highlighted some of these criticisms, but I think, to be fair, the, um, the notion that it is uh, exploitation of Buddhist tradition, well, I think that's a point that should be made. I think, actually, the more interesting point, and I hinted at it earlier, is that it's not so much that um, people have kind of taken, well, they have, kind of taken this extract from Buddhism, this kind of purified meditation practice, divorced it from the context of the Buddhist worldview, and applied it into the context of Western culture. And I think what's interesting about that is Buddhism, historically, has always adapted to culture. You don't generally think of Buddhism in terms of doctrinal schools in the way that we think of Christianity as Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox and this and that. These are doctrinal schools. They're associated with particular areas, but they're also international. In Buddhism, it's much more culturally defined. So, although there are doctrinal schools, even within them, they will be very nationally identified. So, Tibetan Buddhism is very different from Zen in Japan, very different from Theravada Buddhism in Thailand. And even within the Theravada school, the Thai Theravada Buddhists, which we might think would be the same as the you know, Theravada Buddhists in Burma and Laos and Cambodia and Sri Lanka, will say, no, 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 we're nothing like those Sri Lankan Buddhists. That's, you know, there is that sense of cultural identification. And Buddhism has always done that. It's adopted the color of the culture. It's like, a, it's, like it's picked up the dye in the water and it's adopted that sort of appearance. And going back to this thing about mindfulness in Western society, one could argue that actually that is an authentic adaptation of Buddhism to Western culture. That's why it's consumerized. That's why it's individualized. That's why it's taken out of context. That's why it doesn't have the wider ethical and metaphysical framework and, and structure that would have gone with it within the Buddhist tradition. So some people would say that actually contemporary secular mindfulness is modern Western Buddhism, adapted to modern Western culture. And that is precisely why it's all about um, you know, mindful dieting and mindful sex and mindful shopping and mindful, you know, all the things that Western culture is so sort of caught up in and obsessed with. And that, I think, is the much more interesting way of thinking about it than just saying, oh, it's not, you know, it's not sort of proper Buddhist meditation because it hasn't, well, that's true. But actually looking at it as a, as a sort of cultural phenomenon, stepping back from it and saying, okay, so why has it come about in this particular way, in this particular culture, in this particular time? Well, of course, because it's the marriage between Buddhist meditation practice and modern Western consumer culture. Anyway, that's just a, a kind of by the by. The other uh, third way in which mindfulness is talked about, of course, 
is in terms of the specific practice of Buddhist mindfulness meditation. And I think it is worth just saying a little bit about that and why or what is different about that in comparison with the kind of um, you know, secular mindfulness narrative. If you remember the, the kind of standard definition which I alluded to earlier of mindfulness as this kind of non-judgmental awareness in the present moment or open curiosity to present moment experience or you know, that sort of thing, being, being present to experience. That would, that would sit well with um, mindfulness in Buddhism from the kind of the tradition of the Satipatthana Sutra and things like that where mindfulness is described as paying attention to particular experiences and there's a list of the experiences and the breath is the kind of most common one and the Buddha said if you can just do mindfulness of breathing, if you can just do this bit, this one bit, there's another six, but if you can just do this one, that is sufficient. So the idea of um, cultivating awareness of the content of consciousness, that would be common to both the kind of contemporary secular mindfulness narrative and mindfulness meditation in the Buddhist tradition. The difference, I think, comes from the context and the fact that in Buddhism you can't, you don't just practice mindfulness as a therapeutic technique. You don't just practice mindfulness as a way of, of uh, being more productive in your chosen tasks and, and uh, things that you want to do. You practice mindfulness meditation within the context of a Buddhist worldview that includes, and necessarily must include, uh, belief in karma and rebirth, belief in an ethical framework, belief in a right mindfulness as opposed to a not right mindfulness. It's not, as I've said, just a kind of neutral technique that you can simply apply to anything that you think will be useful. The Buddha taught, it's often said, two things, suffering and the relief of suffering. And mindfulness is part of that. But that actually, you know, you simplify it, you can kind of put, you know, you can do a back of a fact packet sort of description of Buddhism and to say, well, it's about suffering or relief of suffering. But the fact is that the uh, Buddhist scriptures, you know, I can walk around with a, with a Bible in a paperback in my pocket quite easily. Text of the Bible can fit into a single volume. You need five foot of shelf space to accommodate the Buddhist scriptures. And that's just in the Pali canon. If you also include the Chinese or the Tibetan canon, you'll probably need double again. Um, huge corpus of literature and a huge amount of detail. Um, too much detail, actually, if you're having to do a PhD in it. Of, of you know, very technical psychological analysis of you know, minute and tedious attention to detail. But all of that is important, and all of that is the context in which mindfulness practice has a very specific role linked to liberation, linked to the attainment of nirvana, linked to an ethical worldview in which there are very specific precepts about what you should and shouldn't do. 
um, linked to the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. There's not much about that in you know some of the popular media accounts of mindfulness that we that we're kind of you know that's out there that's been kind of you know thrown at us. And most of all, Buddhism is about seeing that the self is an illusion. Now, for me, that's actually the the heart of Buddhism. Some people would argue that the, the karma is the heart of Buddhism, and the notion, uh, you know, all the all the kind of understanding around karma and rebirth. And certainly, in a Buddhist culture, karma and rebirth are very much the, the sort of central focus of religious belief and practice within. Uh, certainly the Buddhist countries that, that I visited. But I would say that the, the, the notion of the illusion of the self is the heart of Buddhism. And I don't get much of that from the kind of contemporary mindfulness stuff about you know, de-stressing and you know, better performance in the workplace and mindful dieting and so on and so forth. It, it, the opposite, in fact. It seems very much focused on the enjoyment of the self and the fulfillment of the self, and um, yeah, which is a bit ironic when you consider this was a tradition developed by a celibate monks uh, devoted to poverty and obedience and a very strict uh, code, including 227 precepts by which they had to live and. Uh, you have to confess your faults every two weeks of the full moon and the new moon and so on and so forth. Very, very strict regime, one meal a day, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, quite different from the, the notion of mindfulness as the way to manifest your desires. Quite the opposite, in fact, within Buddhism. And it really is this um, issue of the kind of non-judgmental awareness. Now, in the... Um, the sort of contemporary mindfulness we talk about, you know, non-judgmental awareness, not judging the content of, of experience, not judging the thoughts, just accepting them. Well, fine, fine, fine. But in Buddhism, that non-judgmental awareness goes a bit deeper. It's, that is the core, that is the key to understanding the construct. The process of constructing the self comes about through making those judgments, value judgments, assessing experience as either being positive or negative, and identifying with it, identifying with those value judgments. And this begins the whole process that leads to the illusion of the self, and therefore the suffering that the self experiences, because it is the self that suffers. And in Buddhism, it's all about seeing that the suffering self is an illusion. And you get none of this in the kind of, you know, uh, popular articles on, on mindfulness in, in the kind of contemporary um, situation. So, of course, mindfulness in Buddhism is inextricably bound up with the religious goals of the Buddhist worldview and the teachings of the Buddha. I think there is evidence of mindfulness in the Christian tradition. I'm going to pick up, particularly in the monastic tradition, um, where, I, where I think we can see that. But first of all, meditation in the Christian tradition uh, Notwithstanding the fact that I'm standing here in the headquarters of the you know, WCCM, meditation in the Christian tradition, I would say, comes from something quite different to how we understand uh, meditation today. Meditation, of course, is a word that simply means to think deeply, think deeply about something. And we have traditions of Lectio Divina in the Christian tradition of, of 
ruminating, chewing over the word of God and Holy Scripture. That's a form of meditation. Also, the kind of um, repetition of the Psalms. So the, early, the earliest references to meditation that we have in the Christian tradition are simply reciting the Psalms over and over again. Usually it's thought out loud and in a kind of mumbling you know, just kind of mumbling through, or what we would think today of as mumbling through, not, you know, sort of nice Shakespearean declaration, but kind of, you know, mumbling through the psalmody um, over and over again. Perhaps cultivating a sort of trance-like state, I don't know, but certainly chanting uh, does that, or, or can do that. So that's, that's the earliest, as far as we know, um, type of meditation we have in the Christian Jesus, mumbling, mumbling through the psalms and repeating repeating it over and over again, reading the Word of God and, and meditating on it in that sense. And that does seem to be um, something rather different to the kind of way we understand meditation now, as, uh, and particularly in terms of the mindfulness stuff I'm talking about, in terms of just being aware of consciousness, um, sitting quietly, eyes closed, you know, focusing on your breathing, whatever, um, quite different from kind of mumbling the Psalms. But I do wonder whether the notion of, of mantra meditation within the Christian tradition actually does come from this re repetition of the Psalms. And I'm going to pick up a bit on that uh, in a minute when I talk about um, the use of prayer, a particular use of prayer in the Christian tradition, which I think is where we kind of get the sort of Western mantra thing from. But the main thing I want to start with is um, talking about the rule of St. Benedict and where I think there are traces of something like uh, kind of mindfulness in that. <coughs> in uh, the rule of St. Benedict, the copy is on the table at the back, uh, as are my books, by the way, um, he says, hour by hour, keep careful watch over all that you do, aware that God's gaze is upon you, wherever you may be. As soon as wrongful thoughts come into your heart, dash them against Christ. And he goes on to counsel the monks against harmful speech or deceptive words and foolish chatter and excessive laughter. And I think this is um, really quite analogous to um, how we would understand the kind of mindfulness meditation teaching. The, um, we have this sort of cultivation of um, awareness of the concept of consciousness. Keep careful watch. That's what we do in kind of mindfulness meditation. We're watching, noticing. Keep careful watch. We have the dispatching of distracting thoughts in Benedict's language to be dashed against Christ. Got rid of. Let go. And we have the practice of being mindful in everyday behavior. Being mindful of what we say not saying things that are harmful, not um, engaging in foolish chatter, gossip, chit-chat. So I think there's quite a lot of um, resonance there with the contemporary understandings of mindfulness. Crucially, though, the difference, the crucial difference, is that for Benedict, the cultivation of self-awareness comes within the context of seeing the self as the object of an other awareness, i.e. the awareness of God. 
And that really is a fundamental difference. I talked earlier about the context of Buddhism and how mindfulness and meditation fit within a, a bigger view, a worldview that includes um, ethics and includes metaphysics and includes a soteriological goal. And the same is true for this notion of self-awareness within the uh, Christian contemplative tradition. It's not just an intimate experience of myself, it's seeing the self as an object of a sort of cosmic awareness, if you like. He goes on to say, uh, also in a later chapter, while he guards himself, that's himself being a monk, while he guards himself at every moment from sins and vices of thought or tongue, of hand or foot, of self-will or bodily desire, let him recall that he is always seen by God in heaven, and that his actions everywhere are in God's sight and are reported by angels at every hour. Uh, hence the title of my talk. And this notion again of not just our own awareness, not just cultivating our own awareness, but cultivating the awareness that we are the object of an other awareness. Um, I, I've commented on this before in another context, and I was accused of kind of advocating a heavenly CCTV system, and you know it was thought that that was perhaps not a not a good thing. In a sense, yes, it is a heavenly CCTV system, but I would suggest that actually if we really believed that everything we did and everything we thought was uh, that we would be accountable for it, if we really believed that, then it would be completely transformative. And you would get that deep, total inner transformation that we might uh, want to prefer to see a meditation practice as being about. He goes on to talk about this notion of, of vigilance um, quite a lot. And that's why I think there is quite a lot in the tradition that, that speaks to this, this kind of, you know, this contemporary understanding of, of cultivating awareness. He says, if, if the angels assigned to us report our deeds to the Lord day and night, then, brothers, we must be vigilant every hour. So that notion of vigilance, keeping watch, you get that in the Gospels too. Jesus is often saying, you know, keep awake. You know not the hour. You don't know when the thief is coming. You don't know when the Son of Man is coming. Keep awake. Lots of parables about the need to be attentive, to be aware, to be ready. And we're entering the season of Advent, which of course is, you know, what that's, you know, the whole season is about being aware, being ready, being, you know, waiting for, um, for Jesus to come. There is also uh, the notion of unceasing prayer, which we get from uh, St. Paul. And this, too, is something that we, um, I think we can get this notion of not just Mindfulness isn't just about the practices and the times when we sit for our formal meditation, our 20 minutes, our half an hour, whatever it might be, once a day, twice a day, whatever it might be. That's the practice, that's the exercise that we do. That's, um, you know, that's like going to the gym to get fit so you can run a marathon. You don't go to the gym to get really, really good at using a, um, you know, exercise machinery. You go to the gym to get fit, 
you practice meditation in order to be able to apply it in everyday life circumstances. And so that, that notion of prayer without ceasing, I think, is that notion or equivalent to, analogous to, the idea of, of mindfulness as a state, as a state that you cultivate through specific practices, but which hopefully becomes something you apply uh, in terms of you know, everyday life circumstances all the time, ideally, easier said than done. But that notion of unceasing prayer, I would say, is something like the sort of state mindfulness that is sometimes talked about. That kind of everyday sense, that, that prayer without ceasing, that notion of um, it not just being about the times when we pray, but that attitude of being prayerful at all times. I think we see that in uh, St. Benedict's notion that work and prayer are to be you know, seen as of equal value or as something that are closely integrated. An integration I suggest we have largely lost in our um, present circumstances where uh, work has you know, not, not really, doesn't really have that kind of sacred quality. It's either something we do because we have to and we'd really rather be doing something else, or it's something we get so obsessed with that everything else becomes um, you know, secondary and, and neglected. But it doesn't have that integrated quality where it's actually part of a sort of more, more holistic um, way of life. But in Benedict we do see this. So um, work and prayer are to be seen as an integrated activity, and the day, the monastic day, is punctuated by periods of prayer and periods of work, and they kind of go together. And even if, um, and it says this in the rule, you know, even if a monk is uh, away working in the fields, um, when they hear the bell for prayer, even if they can't get back to the oratory to, to join the rest of the community for prayer, they should just stop what they're doing for a minute and you know, have their prayers uh, where they are and then carry on. So that notion of stopping you know, from time to time um, is, is fundamental to this kind of approach to life as an integration of you know, what we do because we have to do, but actually also remembering that the higher purpose or that you know, the sacred purpose of our life also needs to be integrated in that, needs to be part of that. So that notion of, of work and prayer being together I think gives us a sense of that um, mindfulness in everyday life kind of sense, mindfulness in attitude as something that we apply to life generally. And of course the best example of that notion uh, comes from a very well-known little text that I'm sure you're all familiar with, The Practice of Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, who talks about how his work in the kitchen, doing the washing up, that's his form of prayer. Because he says, you know, in everything I do, I do it for the love of God. I do it with recollection, being mindful of God. And that sense of uh, being aware of God's presence in even the little tedious, kind of, you know, boring everyday things. He, he was the kind of kitchen porter, as it were, of the monastery. Um, that was as important to him as, you know, the times of of prayer and worship in the in the chapel and the Eucharist and so on and so forth. So he didn't see the spiritual and the world as being in any way separate. They were completely integrated. And he was all about trying to, to do everything with the awareness that it was a sacred action, that he was doing it as a form of prayer, as a form of worship, as a form of, of relating to God. 
And just as a little aside, when I read uh, Brother Lawrence, I'm reminded, and this may be a completely uh, uh, pointless kind of comparison, but I'm reminded of the Bhagavad Gita, where uh, Lord Krishna is instructing Prince Arjuna in the tenets of Karma Yoga, and um, saying that, you know, everything you do, you know, you do the things you have to do. He has to go into battle and slaughter all his relatives, and he's kind of not, not kind of completely cool with that idea. But Krishna says, you know, everything you do, this is this doesn't this doesn't matter. What's what's going to happen has been decided already. Your duty is to do what you have to do, but you do it not for yourself, not out of your own selfish uh, concerns or or what you may gain from it or not gain from it or whatever. You do it because it's your duty, and you do it as an attitude of devotion and worship. I mean, bang the battle well, we might we might quibble that. But he gives other examples. Um, and that notion of karma yoga, of service, you know, even in the ordinary, everyday things that we do in life, everything is seen as a, a form of service, a form of worship, a form of prayer, something that relates to God. I think there's a great difference between that attitude, that idea of constant, constantly being recollected to the divine presence in life. I think that's quite different from the kind of contemporary notion of mindfulness as, as just being kind of a bit more present so you can enjoy life more. Nothing wrong with enjoying life, but there is a difference. There is a difference in attitude and there is a difference in context. And I think that difference makes all the difference. Two more things I want to try and bring in. I'm missing out um, a couple of things that we won't have time for. But the two things I want to bring in uh, are one, the notion of um, monologic prayer, that is prayer of one word. And then the other thing I want to mention is murmuring. That's one of my favorite topics. The, um, the other, so I've mentioned Benedict, could have said a bit more about Benedict. I've mentioned Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God. Um, I would kind of go on and on about the Desert Fathers, but I'm not going to. That might be time for a topic for another talk. But I'm going to mention The Cloud of Unknowing, which I reread just quite recently um, in preparation for this evening, in fact. And this, of course, is a text in which the notion of prayer as a single word is emphasized. The tradition of using uh, short, intense prayers goes back to the Desert Fathers and in turn goes back to the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where he rebuts the temptations with sort of short verses from scripture to kind of counteract that distracting, disturbing thought. And the Desert Fathers took the story of the temptation in the wilderness as a kind of model for their own practice. <coughs> Topic for another talk. Cloud of Unknowing, as I'm sure you all know, great 13th century mystical classic English. Probably um, the author, Anonymous, probably thought to be a Carthusian monk. And uh, a great discourse on contemplative prayer practice of contemplative spirituality and quite a lot in it that's very 
illustrative of the uh, workings of the human mind and very familiar to anyone who kind of steeped in that tradition of, of contemplative spirituality. Talks about the deceptive nature of the thoughts and the ways in which they will tend to distract us. Even if we start with kind of lofty spiritual thoughts, the kind of process soon um, kind of degenerates as the mind gets entranced by those ideas led from one thought to another, and then quote, so that in the end, before you know it, you will be scattered, you do not know where. The cause of this scattering is that you first listened willingly to the thought, answered it, accepted it, and let it work freely. And there is, I think, in that for anyone who has any experience of meditation and observing the mind and, and the thoughts and so on and so forth, something that probably rings very true for you as it does for me. We also note the insistence in the work of this author on the utter transcendence of God, something that is beyond all thought, all words, all concepts. He says, leave behind your outward bodily senses and all that they work on, because I tell you truly that this work of contemplation may not be understood by them. And he talks about a cloud of unknowing, hence the title, that is somehow between us and that which is ultimately real and true for the Christian, certainly for this author, God. But there is a cloud of unknowing that's kind of blocking our ability to to that, to understand that, to know God. And he talks too about a cloud of forgetting into which we are to, as it were, kind of drop all thoughts, all experience, all sensations, all the stuff that comes to mind when we, as we do to this day, practice meditation or some sort of contemplative discipline all this stuff is there, and we try to let it go. We try not to get caught up in it. We try not to kind of become the star of the movie. We try not to be part of that story. And for this author, it talks about a cloud of forgetting into which we are to let all that go, which I find quite a, quite a sort of um, vivid image, which is why I, I enjoyed rereading this text recently. And then most of all, he emphasizes the need or the technique, the technique of a short prayer, a single word prayer, preferably a single syllable. So for the author of the cloud, the mantra, um, unlike the one preferred by WCCM, which has four syllables, I've never managed to get to grips with that, I'll say that now, um, I've never managed to get to grips with uh, as, a, as a mantra because it has, for me, too many syllables. I prefer something with two syllables. One would not be enough. Um, but for the author of the cloud, it's got to be one syllable. And he believes this is the most effective, simplest, most effective, most direct. And the idea is that the, because, because between us and God, or that which is ultimately real and true, is this cloud of unknowing, 
an unknowability. God is beyond what can be known, what can be said, what can be described, beyond um, any kind of conceptualization. In another, uh, in another text that's often published together with the cloud, he says, his incomprehensible transcendence is incomprehensibly above all affirmation and denial. Nothing can say nothing that you, you can't say. You know, you can't just, just is what is. Um, because there is this cloud of unknowing, you cannot think your way to it. You cannot think your way to the ultimate truth. You cannot think your way. You cannot know God through thought. You cannot work it out. That's the whole point. So he talks about um, more about a feeling, a feeling of great uh, love and attraction towards this that is ultimately real and true. And that this is encapsulated, this, this is focused into a single word, prayer. And he uses some quite vivid examples. So he says, you know, if there's a fire, you don't sort of stand around saying, well, there's a, a fire and uh, some of that wooden furniture is burning and the curtains are burning, so that's a particular kind of combustion and it's probably a you know, temperature of so many uh, degrees centigrade. You just shout, fire! One word to get through the message that you want to convey. You don't get into any kind of description and uh, analysis of that experience. It's just quiet. And that says it all. So this idea of a single word prayer is something that we um, find in the Christian tradition. Cloud of Unknowing is a medieval text that goes back to the Desert Fathers. They were very into that too. And they, you know, in turn derived that um, from the scriptures. And that, I think, is probably where we get the notion of Christian meditation using the mantra. I don't know, there was a chap, um, a monk of worth, um, Don Mark, who did a PhD on the, on kind of where John Maine got his ideas from. And um, he was he was doing his masters when I knew him. Uh, he went on to, to do a PhD, and I don't know what his kind of conclusions were, but I know that in his masters he, he was asking me about um, you know kind of Indian spirituality and Upanishads and this sort of thing. He wanted to kind of get his head around this and was trying to say, well, you know, did did it come from? Did these ideas come from you know sort of borrowings from Eastern traditions and the use of mantras in Eastern traditions? Mantra is a Sanskrit word, of course. And I don't know what his conclusion was. I'd be interested to know whether he, whether he felt that actually John Maynard had kind of been influenced by some of those Eastern traditions, or whether actually there is an authentic kind of mantra meditation coming all the way through the Christian tradition, going right back to, you know, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think the answer is yes. But I'd be interested to know what Don Mark uh, made of that in his thesis. The last thing I want to talk about is murmuring, because that's a nice thing to end on. Um, Eckhart Tolle, Tolle uh, of whom I know you've all heard, uh, if not read at least uh, one of his books, he describes his work um, as, uh, he says, a restatement for our time of that one timeless spiritual teaching, the essence of all religions. We could have a long discussion about that. Are all religions the same? Mm. Um, 
he certainly has a gift for repackaging ancient, timeless wisdom, uh, which in its original sources very often clothed in quite sort of complex imagery and language and um, concepts and technical ideas unfamiliar to uh, modern readers. I mean, the cloud of unknowing is full of quite, quite sort of unfamiliar language and ideas, and you kind of have to unpack it a little bit and see how it relates to contemporary experience. And a lot of those traditions are quite inaccessible. So he's he's done a you know amazing job of, of kind of rendering some of those ideas in in a fresh and contemporary and accessible way. And of course, um, sold millions of books in the process. Of, not at all envious. His big thing, as you'll know, is all about awareness, being present, mindfulness in all but name, although he never uses that word. It's quite interesting when you read his books, he quotes more from the Bible than any other source. He's often referencing sort of biblical stories. But the origin of most of his ideas actually is quite easy to trace a little further to the east. He probably draws most heavily on Vedanta, and it's quite obvious in, in the kind of ideas that he expresses that that's where he's coming from. And the, um, the book A New Earth, which I'm sure you've all read, it's on the shelf there, um, even more successful than The Power of Now, which is possibly the one he's most famous for, talks about the fact that there is a voice in our heads that is always complaining, telling ourselves stories about what should or shouldn't have been the case. All the time, it's going on there, even you know without us being aware of it. There's this voice constantly kind of complaining, constantly commenting, adding this commentary to our experience. It's the habit we have, as he puts it, of applying negative mental labels to people, either to their face or more commonly when you speak about them to others, or even just when you think about them. And with that complaining, very often comes resentment and a very poisonous kind of tendency to reduce other people and the reality of other people to our own kind of story about them, our own projections. And actually, what we think of other people very often tells us more about ourselves than anything that is true of them. And we, we know that. We don't often behave as if we know that, but we do know that. And what he's talking about there, it's just a half a page or page and a half, I can't remember, what he's talking about there, whether he knows it or not, I wouldn't be able to comment, is the notion of murmuring, as it is found in Christian contemplative tradition. Now, this is something that derives, um, if you already know all this, I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but I really like talking about murmuring, so I'm going to do it anyway. It derives from the um, biblical books of Exodus and Numbers, in which we repeatedly hear about the Israelites complaining um, to God, well, to Moses mainly, and then Moses <coughs> kind of move it up the, up the chain. They're constantly complaining. They've come out of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering around the desert, lost, um, for 40 years, which is quite a long time to get lost in a relatively small part of the world. And they are grumbling and complaining about food, mainly, about the fact that they haven't got the comforts of life that they um, used to enjoy back in Egypt. Forgetting for a moment the fact that they were slaves in Egypt and they had to escape because of the intolerable burden of oppression that they were under. 
but they remember instead all the good things. They remember their former life through those rose-tinted spectacles that we so often wear ourselves. And they're constantly complaining against God and against Moses and um, saying things like, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food, always worrying about food, um, which, you know, nothing much has changed. This kind of common delusion that, that we have, it's, a, it's human nature that we're talking about here, it's nothing to do with the fact that, you know, whether it's historical or not, it's simply human nature. This idea that we imagine the past as being better than it was, this um, idea of being kind of obsessed with with our kind of bodily comfort, um, you know, that's the that's the sort of thing that that really that they're complaining the most about, and their sort of nostalgic yearning for some sort of utopian ideal. And we do this all the time. Either, either we project it into the past and we think the past is so much better than it than it probably was, or we project it into the future and imagine the future that you know if only such and such can be like this and that, then everything will be fine. The kind of notion of the grass being greener on the side of the fence, which it never is. We constantly project the idea of something else, always wanting something else. But most of all, murmuring is about the complaining, the constant kind of complaining commentary narrative thing that's going on in our heads all the time. Generally, it's unfavorable. Generally, it's an unfavorable comparison of other people with ourselves. We can be very critical, self-critical too. Very self-critical. Oh, why did I say that? Why didn't I read my notes before I came to this lecture? <laughs> but you're probably sitting there thinking, why didn't he get a haircut? <laughs> or, you know, whatever it might be. We're constantly commenting on people, mainly around us, situations too, our own story within that situation often wanting it to be other than it is, not accepting reality as it is, thinking things should or shouldn't be. Those two words, dreadful, dreadful words, that give you know, voice to our kind of projections and fantasies and delusions and, and, and speak of the kind of bubble in which we live. And the thing about this complaining and uh, murmuring is it's utterly, utterly poisonous. As Eckhart Tolle says, as was the case for the Israelites in the desert, their complaining got so annoying to God that he decided to punish them by sending poisonous snakes. And if you remember the story, the snakes bite them and half of them die. It literally poisoned the community, literally. And Benedict has um, quite a lot to say about murmuring in the rule to bring it back to Benedict. <clears throat> he explicitly denounces it at several points and uh, says things like, if a disciple obeys grudgingly and murmurs, not only aloud but also in his heart, then even though he carries out the order, his action will not be accepted with favor by God who sees that he is murmuring in his heart. This idea that actually it's the internal commentary. Yes, there's plenty of out loud complaining that we do too. Any time that we engage in gossip, uh, which we do a lot, talking about other people, often complaining, 
um, any time that we are complaining about situations, be that at work or state of the government or whatever it might be, you know, that's murdering. That's not to say there isn't a time and a place for legitimate complaint. There isn't a time and a place for addressing a situation, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that commentary, that tendency that we have to just be kind of critical and to compare others unfavorably with ourselves. I would never do that. You know, why did she say that to me yesterday? I would never do that. That comparison that puts the other person down or puts them into a, you know, a projection that we are putting on them. Very often says more about me than the other person. The word murmuring uh, comes from the Latin and the Latin Bible that Benedict would have used has the word uh, murmurato in it. Um, modern translations usually use grumbling or complaining, but I like murmuring. I think it has that, it kind of sounds like what it is, that kind of low mumbling, so it's that kind of sound. And uh, I think it's a particularly graphic way of describing that tendency that we have. And the thing is, I mean, it's quite natural. It's quite natural because it is just the commentary, and that commentary is going on all the time. In a sense, because it's, it's natural, it's just the mind kind of churning over and doing its thing. I think, well, you know, what's the big deal? The big deal is when it is um, constantly negative, and that negativity just always there. And we probably know people or have encountered people or have, you know, maybe had colleagues or people we've, we've worked with or people <coughs> in our families or whatever who are always complaining always seeing fault, usually in others, often maybe also in themselves. And we get a real sense of that kind of negativity that that person might be kind of carrying around and the effects that it has around them too. So we can see it when we start to notice. But the other thing about murmuring is that actually, because we are not really aware of it, the whole point of meditation, mindfulness meditation in particular, to finally return to my topic, is about noticing, about being aware. And if we're not even aware of the voice in our heads that is kind of, you know, bitching and complaining and gossiping and chit-chatting and, you know, generally kind of making a rather uh, unfavorable account of life or telling a story that is probably not true. If we're not even aware that we're doing that, we're kind of barely off the starting block. So actually, the first thing we need to do is become aware of what's going on up here. And that, of course, is what we do in meditation very often, particularly in a kind of mindfulness meditation practice, about observing the mind, being aware, seeing those stories, seeing those stories that we tell ourselves about the world around us, seeing where we are in that story, the star of the movie, and becoming aware of those times. Just as we're going about life, I do it all the time. I, I go to, we have a, a metro in Newcastle, it's not quite like a tube in London, it's not big, but, but I go into work on the metro every day, and I'll be standing there, and I'll be looking at people and saying, God, what is he wearing? Doesn't he realize how really, you know, look at her makeup, good grief. We do this all the time. 
well, maybe it's only me, I don't know, but I would suggest we probably do that sort of thing. In one way or another, it may, you know, I've given some sort of rather trivial examples. But becoming aware of that voice, that complaining, murmuring voice, it's really, really important. Because it's just a kind of background. We don't even, don't even notice it until we stop to look and to notice and become aware of it. And if we can become aware of how that murmuring is actually taking our energy away from the presence and turning it into something that's quite a kind of negative energy. We can become aware of that and perhaps uh, stop it. I think that's probably a good idea. And the, um, there's a saying from the, the Desert Fathers. I mean, Benedict was, as I'm sure you'll know, familiar with the, the lives and the sayings of the Desert Fathers, so it's not like he was making this stuff up himself. Um, there's, there's one saying from Desert Fathers, as a man may, be, may seem to be silent, but if his heart is condemning others, he is babbling ceaselessly. But there may be another who talks from morning till night, and yet is truly silent. That is, he says nothing that is not 